So, uh, not only were they awakened, they were arhats, they were fully awakened. So it's definitely possible for lay people, certainly in the time of the Buddha, it was possible for lay people to become fully awakened. And to further give us an idea of the level of involvement of lay people in, uh, in the development of the Dharma and in the practice of the Dharma. It was an occasion where the Buddha listed 81 amongst his disciples who were foremost for one thing or another. He said, this one is foremost in meditation, and this one is foremost in that, and so forth, and going through this list. And he named 81 of his disciples who were foremost in one thing or another. Interesting thing out of that list of 81, 21 of them were lay disciples. The rest were bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, of course, but 21 of them were lay disciples, and they were not the same 21 that he mentioned on that other occasion as being fully awakened. So that's, uh, what, one quarter of his foremost disciples were lay people. One of them in particular, the layman Chita, is his name, uh, was listed as being foremost in teaching the Dharma. There were actually two other uh, of his disciples who were not lay people who were also mentioned as being foremost in teaching the Dharma. But one of the three disciples who was best at teaching the Dharma to others was the lay, lay person Chita, the layman Chita. So, I, I mention this just to assure you that as a layperson you have the capacity to become awakened and you have the capacity to help others to become awakened. And I think that's a very important thing to realize. Uh, in much of the world people have gotten the impression in Buddhist countries that lay people really can't get enlightenment. It's very, it's very difficult for a lay person to become awakened. So I want you to realize that that's not, that's not necessarily true. A lay person faces a different set of challenges. And it's true that most lay people don't have sufficient interest in awakening to do what's necessary. But for a layperson who has sufficient interest, who would like to become awakened, it is definitely possible. Now, at the time of the Buddha, he encouraged people to give up the life of a householder, to give up everything, to give up all of their possessions, and to live with nothing but a set of robes and a bowl and to to be to be free of all of the distractions and burdens so that they could spend all of their time practicing the Dharma. And it's obvious that that is that is a good approach. Simplify your life as much as possible so that all you have to do is to practice the Dharma. But for one reason or another, 
you've decided not to do that. Right? Well, most of you, there's one of us here who's decided to do that. Very wonderful. But even there, I, if you, I'm sure most of you are aware that amongst the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, the, the monks and nuns today in this modern world, it's not like you become a monk or a nun and you have all your time free to do nothing but meditate and practice and study because they too have their, their time is called upon to do many kinds of other things and uh, they have responsibilities. They interact with other people that upsets their mind. They have to deal with situations that are difficult that upsets their mind. That's not true. Yes. So, so whether a person is a monastic or a lay person, they're basically faced with the problem that there are other demands on their time and energy and also the things that happen in these interactions disturb the mind and interfere with the practice and create problems. So, as lay people and as modern monastics, we all have the same problem. Since we can't simplify our lives to the degree, well, most of us can't. There are a few people that go off into the forest, and that's all they do is practice, or they go off into the mountains and the cave. But they're a very, very small minority of all of the people. So the rest of us have to deal with the situation that is the reality of where we are. If we are serious about pursuing the path to awakening, we have to find a way to do it in the context of our daily life, the way that it really happens. And the only way that we can do that is to take all of these other things that occupy our time and energy and make them into a part of our practice. You see the logic of that? One approach is you get rid of everything else so that all you have to do is practice. If that doesn't work, then you have to take the other stuff and make it into the practice as well. And if you can do that, then you, now you have all of your time of you can devote 100% of your time to uh, practicing the Dharma. And that's one of the things that we want to talk about here. Now, the meditation part, the formal practice, is very important because, uh, as you all know, even the beginners will have found out in that short time that we spent, your mind is totally out of control. And unless you do something about that, uh, you are not going... You, that is what keeps you caught in the dream. That's what keeps you caught in the delusion. And unless you can change this, you're not going to be able to achieve awakening. So formal practice is absolutely essential. You have to take the time to let go of everything else and to be quiet and close your eyes and experience the nature of your mind and tame your mind and then with your tamed mind begin to discover the true nature of mind and then the true nature of reality. That's the, that's the awakening is to discover the true nature of reality. So 
then we see what our problem is really clearly. What is the task at hand? If you're serious about this Dharma practice, you're going to have to create a space in your life for meditation, learn to meditate, and to practice for whatever period of time you can. An hour a day, four hours a day, uh, half an hour one day, two hours another day, whatever it is. You're going to have to do that. And you're going to have to figure out how to make that happen in the context of your life. But the other thing that you're going to have to do is you're going to have to figure out how to make the rest of your life into a practice that is just as valuable and just as effective as uh, the time that's sitting. But it, it is valuable and effective in a different way. It doesn't replace, the, so you need both. You need to have both. You both have to, have to have practice in daily life and you have to have meditation in daily life. So that's the, that's the challenge that confronts us and that's what we're going to talk about this weekend. And before we get into it, in, before I actually get into it in detail together here, I just want to point out something to you. It's very important that you make this decision to take up this path and that you do the kind of work that we're talking about. It's very important. It's the most important thing in the world, in my opinion. Uh, it's the most important thing for you as an individual. It's also the most important thing for this world of other suffering individuals. Um, whether you come from Asia or whether you were born in the United States, you are all now in a Western culture and Buddhism is coming to this Western culture. It's interesting to notice how Buddhism has, is changing as it's coming to this culture. Uh, on here, is, on the handout, I gave you a quote from Alan Wallace. Some of you may know who Alan Wallace is. He, was, uh, he became a Tibetan Buddhist monk in uh, Dharamsala many, many years ago. And he studied uh, under the Dalai Lama uh, in that sect. Later on, he, uh, he uh, set aside the robes and became a layperson and, and a teacher. He's still very much a, a teacher of Buddhism and involved in that. And what he noticed is that with what's happening in Buddhism in the West is, uh, he says, an erosion of the distinction between professional and lay Buddhists. The difference, and I mentioned that we're finding on the one hand that monastics are a lot like lay people in that they have jobs that take many hours of every day and they have responsibilities and they have to interact with other people. So they are more like lay people. On the other hand, there are lay people who haven't taken robes, but who at the same time have said, I'm dedicating my life to the achievement of awakening. And so the difference there is not as great as it once was. A decentralization of doctrinal authority. Uh, an increased spirit of egalitarianism. Greater leadership roles for women. Uh, in other words, the form that Buddhism is taking here 
is one more. It's not one so much where there is the guru who knows everything and, and teaches everything, and everyone else who accepts the word of the teacher unquestioningly, with no, uh, without thinking and challenging and so forth. Instead, every teacher is. I, I, actually, what's happening in the West is more the way it was at the time of the Buddha, because the Buddha, his instructions were, don't take anything I say on the basis of my authority. Do not believe what I say on the, out of respect for me, or out of respect for any other teacher. Don't, don't believe anything that I or any other teacher says, because it's in books or scriptures, or it corresponds to what's taught in books or scriptures. Don't take what I say as being true because hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people follow this teaching and they say, ah, this is the great teacher, whatever he says must be true. Examine it for yourself. And this is a, this is, this was very important teaching at that time, and it's a very important teaching for you in the world today, is to use your own mind and your own experience and to take this dharma and to make it your own. And uh, use it as a vehicle for achieving the goal that you want to achieve. Whether you're a lay person, whether you choose to become a monastic, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, uh, whether you're a young young boy or uh, uh, someone who has lived many decades makes no difference. We're all the same. We're all caught in the same delusion and this Dharma is our path out of it and each of us has to follow that path on our own. So. This is the Buddhist environment that we find ourselves in, one that is inviting us as lay people to take initiative and to dedicate ourselves and to do so with the conviction that we can succeed. Conviction is very important, as we'll see when we start looking at some of the Buddha's advice to lay people. Uh, he mentions different qualities, and conviction is number one of those. Uh, also described as faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which is faith in the, the truth and the attainability of enlightenment, faith in the Dharma as a vehicle that actually will succeed in getting us there, and faith in the Sangha as being the community which can support and help us. With the conviction that it's possible for you, you have to have that conviction. To the degree that you don't think it's possible, uh, it's not going to be possible. So you have to have that conviction. But this is very important. If you think about this world uh, we live in, how many people there are, how limited the resources are of space, of fresh water, of energy resources. I mean, it's true, maybe we'll discover some wonderful new energy resource. But it is a crowded and busy planet. Uh, the environment is becoming more and more polluted. In spite of all of the technological progress that human beings have made, 
There is massive poverty in every part of the world, including this wealthy country that we find ourselves in right now. There is tremendous injustice in every part of the world. There is exploitation and cruelty. And, of course, as always, there is war. There's an increasing number of serious diseases that confront us. Because of the expanding population and the changing climate and the pollution, is a serious question of how people can continue to survive for very long. Now, if we look at the way this mass of humanity on this planet is functioning, if it continues going the way it is, where people are motivated by greed <coughs> and by hatred, can you see any way for things to get better? The best that we seem to hope for is that, well, maybe somebody will come up with some remarkable new way to replace uh, oil as an energy source. Maybe we'll come up with some remarkable new way to raise food so that we don't starve right away. We'll put it off. People will start starving 100 years from now instead of 20 years from now. Actually, people are already starving, although it's not necessary at this time. But that's a good point, too. Why is it, if there's enough food to feed everybody in the world, why are people still starving? It's because of greed and hatred, is it not? It's because of whole systems that are set up based on greed and hatred. So, the world is in a very dangerous condition. Think of it this way. Here we have, over here we have this thousand foot waterfall that goes, goes down into an abyss. Here we all are. We're all in the same boat. The boat is headed towards the waterfall very quickly. Right? And uh, there's a strong guy on one side of the boat with an order that's labeled green, paddling towards the waterfall as fast as possible. The guy on the other side has an order labeled hatred, paddling as fast as he can towards the waterfall. So we've got to turn the boat around. <laughs> and of all of the ways that that can happen, the one that, that I see is for the Buddhist values of loving kindness, and compassion, patience, virtue, uh, and uh, the attainment of wisdom. This is what I, this is the only way that I can see that the boat can be turned around. But even there, it's going to take it's going to take a lot of us to turn it around, right? So we can't rely on that small number of people who become monastics. We all have to get involved in adopting these values, practicing these values, and most importantly, achieving the goal, awakening, of overcoming the ignorance, because the only way 
that enough people will adopt these Buddhist values in a short enough period of time is if there is a very large number of people who have awakened to this truth. And for every one of them, around them spreads this understanding so that all of those around them look at them and say, how can I be like this person? How can I enjoy what I see this, the benefits that this person enjoys? That's the only way they will become interested in adopting these values and practicing in this way. So, the, uh, the fate of humanity on this planet, I mean, the world will continue on, even if all human beings die. The world will continue. But the fate of humanity, of all of these sentient beings who are just like you and me, depends on a radical transformation of exactly the sort that this Dharma is talking about. But the other really important thing for you to make this your path and to pursue it seriously is for your own sake. Whether or not we succeed in changing the, the, changing the path of the boat that's heading towards the waterfall, you can liberate yourself and that will both contribute towards turning the boat around, but even if the boat doesn't get turned around, you'll be liberated before it goes over the edge, okay? Which, by the way, your boat is going to go over the edge no matter what. The one thing that I can guarantee you from this moment, unless you die before I finish telling you this, is that you are going to experience pain and suffering in your life. And you're going to experience illness and physical suffering, you're going to experience loss of people you love, you're going to experience loss of things that you love, you're going to get old and you're going to die. So your boat's going over the waterfall no matter what. <laughs> so, this, is, this is why we need to do this. So. so let's turn our attention to how we go about doing this. So there's um, three parts to this practicing this dharma. One is you have to you have to study, you have to learn, you have to listen, you have to find out well, what is this about in the first place. And the second part is that you have to try it out. Okay, you get these ideas, you get this intellectual understanding. You, heard this teaching, read this teaching, you know, maybe played it on your CD while you're driving the car, you know. Oh yeah, that, that sounds really good, that makes sense to me. But you have to make that real for yourself. You have to do as the Buddha said, you have to test it, try it out. You have to apply it in your life. You have to, to prove it to yourself that this is true. And then having learned about the Dharma, having satisfied yourself about the truth of the Dharma, then you have to apply it. You have to put it to work so that it produces the results so that you gain the fruit of it. And that brings us back to where we started. Two parts. You have to learn to meditate. You have to practice meditation. You have to uh, make those changes in the way your mind 
works, and then you have to use your mind to discover the truth that allows you to awaken. So you have to meditate and you have to practice in your daily life. And that's what we're talking about. So, now it's your turn. Say something to me. Yes? What exactly is the definition for Dharma? For Dharma? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, very good question. Well, yeah. uh, the way we're using it here, it means uh, ultimate truth, and it means the teaching about the ultimate truth, and the teaching that leads to understanding the ultimate truth. Um, the word dharma itself its original meaning was the kind of experience that we have as a conscious being. So uh, that might be dharma spelled with a small d. So every experience that you have is a dharma. And so your life is made up of all of these little dharmas, the things that you see and hear and think and feel and so forth. All of these are dharmas. Right? And uh, collectively, these make up the relative truth or the delusion that we live in. So when you say Dharma with a capital D, then what that's referring to is the ultimate true nature of reality, the ultimate truth. And, but most of the time when you hear people say Dharma, you know, study the Dharma, practice the Dharma, they're talking specifically about the teaching uh, the teaching of the Buddha and the teaching of all of the enlightened beings and the lineages since the time of the Buddha that help to guide us to achieve that for ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you talk about the uh, uh, real truth, uh, the true nature of uh, the things that uh, we try to achieve, and you talk about the uh, delusion. Yeah. Uh, and since we live in this world, I mean, everything is so real, as real as a rock. Uh, everything is impacted us in a very uh, realistic way. So can you uh, uh, explain uh, what is the delusion and uh, what is the true nature? Yes, I, I would be happy to. Because that's a really drastic and dramatic statement to say, you're all living in an illusion. <laughs> so what, what does that mean? And what are the implications of that? Now you have to recognize that discovering that this is a delusion is a major part of where everything is going. So now if I could if I could say to you in a few sentences something that would make you clearly understand 
how what seems so real is a delusion, then, uh, or that would, that would be a wonderful shortcut to the end of the path, because once you can see that this is a delusion, then it's a very, very simple step from there to seeing the true nature of reality. I mean, the, the true nature of the reality you live in is that it is projected by your mind. So I'm not necessarily going to be able in a few senses to clearly identify the delusion. I'll tell you one thing about the delusion, though, is it is an extremely well-constructed delusion. And that's why why it's so difficult for you to recognize that it is a delusion. And, uh, well, maybe the way to... Maybe the way to approach this is to actually, uh, we'll be, let's begin looking at that very first sutra in the, uh, or excerpt from the sutras that I gave you in the handout, which was actually uh, said to be the first teaching of the Buddha. Because where this fits in, whenever the Buddha was asked, what is it that you teach? He said, I, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And that's, that's all. Or, uh, what does it mean to have no suffering? That's, what do you experience when you have no suffering? You're contented, you're happy, you're serene, comfortable. Is there any greater pleasure than, to, than total free from any sort of suffering and dissatisfaction. Well, we can go into that uh, uh, a bit further later on. But to speak of the end of suffering is to speak, uh, and actually we say the word suffering, the word is dukkha. It means the end of every kind of dis- unsatisfactoriness. So to speak of the end of every kind of dissatisfaction and unsatisfactoriness is to speak of something that we all aspire to. As a matter of fact, all of the things that we do while we're caught in delusion, the reason for our greed and the reason for our hatred is that we all think that we're going to free ourselves from suffering. If we, uh, we're going to free ourselves from dissatisfaction. Our greed comes from the belief that if I can have this, if I can have that, if I can only have this, you know, our mind projects the idea of this is the solution. If I had this, if I were in this place, then I would be truly happy. Then all of my dissatisfaction would be gone. Or if I could destroy this cause of pain, if I could avoid that, if I can, uh, uh, if I, if I can cease to be impacted by this other thing, then all my dissatisfaction would be gone. And so all of our craving and all of our hatred comes from the desire to be free from all dissatisfaction. So when the Buddha taught that all I teach is uh, dissatisfaction suffering and the freedom from dissatisfaction suffering, this is, this is a very important thing. Um, And the reason 
that we suffer is because we are trapped in a delusion. So let's look at this first sutra. It's called the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutra, uh, the turning of the Dharma wheel. And this is just a part of the sutra. But to give you the background of this, the Buddha had become enlightened sitting, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And he tried to think of, you know, he, he said, this, this is difficult to understand. He tried to think of anyone that he could teach it to. Uh, and the first two people that he thought of were his own teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. But uh, as it turned out, they had both died. And the next people he thought of were the five companions that prior to his enlightenment he had been practicing with in the forest. And so he went to the place that they were staying. And um, uh, he gave this, this his first teaching, the turning of the Dharma wheel. And the, this sutra as we have it is not very long. You could recite the whole thing out loud in probably about 15 minutes, less than 20 minutes anyway. But what we know is he spent many, many hours giving this teaching to this group of uh, five companions. Uh, which uh, uh, this teaching and the next sermon after actually led to the uh, awakening of, of all five of these. So this 20-minute sutra that we have is very much a condensation of the many, many hours of teaching that he did with these five. And what I have here for you is an excerpt that doesn't even fill up one page from that, but I think it catches the, uh, the most important gist of that. So let's look at this now. It's, this is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, or suffering, right? You are, does everybody know that everybody's heard of the truth of suffering? The first noble truth? Anybody here that's not familiar with that? Does everybody here understand it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you understand it? No, you don't understand it? Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, understanding it is a very important thing. If you look down here, uh, one, two, three, four, the, the fifth little, fifth line there says, vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. So whatever it is he's about to say, he's saying, this is so remarkable that no one else has ever figured this out before. And what you often hear is truth is suffering. Oh yeah, all, life is life is full of suffering. Does that sound like something that no one had ever heard of before? Okay, so at at that level, if somebody says to you the, the noble truth of suffering is that the life that life is full of suffering, they haven't understood it because that's definitely not something that goes beyond ordinary understanding. Okay. Um. And we talked about this at Shilai Temple. And they said, and I, they said, okay, we're going to talk about the noble truth. And, uh, first noble truth, I don't know. They said, okay, what, what is the first noble truth? And they say, it's the truth of suffering. Okay, but what is the truth of suffering? It's, 
the truth is is that he's making claim that this is a really profound truth that, that, is, uh, that uh, up until his time, nobody had really understood. And you can't believe that nobody had ever understood that into every life some rain must fall. <laughs> As a matter of fact, some people had already understood that, that uh, in some lives it's nothing but rain. <laughs> right. So he says here... Uh, this is the noble truth of dukkha. This noble truth of dukkha is to be comprehended. And this noble truth of dukkha has been comprehended. So this is the first part of the path. You really need to, you know, this is how it begins. You have to get a grasp on what this truth of dukkha means. Now, what most of us would say is that, uh, well, yes, there's some, some dissatisfactoriness about life. And as a teacher, you say some, and I say, well, there's a lot of dissatisfactoriness about life. Um, a lot. And you think about it and say, well, you get right down to it, there's a few moments of satisfaction here and there, but. Uh, most of the time, there's some kind of dissatisfaction present. You're not really happy. Uh, you're always wanting something else. You're wanting things to be different. So, we have to look at what this word dukkha means. It means dissatisfactoriness. It comes from, uh, and here's the interesting thing, the original meaning of the word dukkha in Sanskrit referred to what happened when you had a wheel uh, uh, on an axle where the axle hole was not round. So you can imagine what it was would be like if you had a cart and the wheels, it's like it's, it, the wheels always, it's never running smooth. So dukkha comes from the, you know, it's, it's very descriptive, isn't it? You think about, you know, you, you got a wheel that just never runs smooth. Um, but uh, from its original meaning in that sense, it came to mean that which is dissatisfactory. So, you know, uh, being tortured with branding irons is inside dissatisfactory, right? So, severe physical pain is dissatisfactory. Uh, the loss of a loved one is dissatisfactory. So there are these large dissatisfactorinesses that we call suffering, but it also includes 
all the smaller dissatisfactorinesses too. The sense of meaninglessness of life, uh, the little frustrations, the discomfort. I asked you all to sit still for half an hour while we meditated. I said, sit completely still. And unless you're a very experienced meditator, I guarantee you, you experienced a lot of dissatisfactoriness about sitting still. Just being in this body is filled with a lot of dissatisfactoriness. As a matter of fact, the Vipassana teachers like to point this out to people, you know, that, that uh, we constantly move because we're constantly trying to avoid the discomfort that just simply comes from having a body. And, and that is kind of an important insight. It brings you to understand really how pervasive this dukkha is. The wheel never really runs smooth, except for, you know, there's a, those, those short periods. But then, if we examine even those short periods, we find that when you have what you want, you're already worried about losing it. As a matter of fact, it's guaranteed that you're going to lose it. It is absolutely impossible that you could get what makes you happy and hold on to it. It just simply cannot happen. So even getting what you want has this element of dissatisfactoriness to it. So if you think about it, you're, you know, you're willing to admit that, yeah, life is pretty well pervaded by dissatisfactoriness of all different degrees. May it not all be, you know, tortured by branding iron severity, but you can't get away from it, and it's always there, and even if it's not there in the moment, it's looming, waiting to get you uh, a few moments later. So, now this isn't, this still isn't a very profound understanding, is it? I think I've you know, a whole lot of people have, who never heard of the Buddha have probably figured this out. And probably a whole lot of people. So, so it would be really presumptuous uh, and disappointing if the Buddha was suggesting that this was the truth that he had discovered that no one had ever spoken before. Would it not? Must be something more to it than that. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that in a general sense, the whole universe is adverse. The whole universe is the whole universe is adverse yes. to us. And if I if I can quote, the perfect adaptation of an organism to its environment is to die. Yeah. <laughs> so, so actually you, you I mean that must be desirable that, that it's all out to get us. You you've penetrated right to it there. That's uh, I uh, I very glad to hear you say that. Because yes. The universe is adverse to us. That's what he said. So as soon as we have a boundary and say, here's me and here's the universe, the boundary between me and the universe is a kind of combat zone. I'm always trying to get the things that will bring me some joy and satisfaction and avoid the things that are going to cause me pain and, and suffering, right? So to exist... To exist as a separate self in a universe that is not self is to be in this situation. And it will never, the only way that it will ever become perfect is if you die. 
then nothing can hurt you anymore, and you can't lose anything. And Until your next life. <laughs> Until the next life. That's right. Yeah. And that's actually a situation that uh, uh, that the philosophers and, and uh, the religious teachers were, were at at the time of the Buddha. They figured out, they had gotten that far, that yeah, as long as to exist in this world is to suffer. And the only end to it is extinction. And they believed in reincarnation, so this created a real problem for them, okay? So if I'm going to be reincarnated, I mean, I have to go through this all over and over again. And so what they were looking for is a way off of the wheel. And uh, there were many different groups with many different belief systems wandering around in India at that time, all trying to, to all, all offering, this is the way to get off of the wheel. But there is implicit in that the recognition of the situation that uh, we are in. And it holds in it a profound truth which we'll get to, okay? Um, but, but the answer is there even in the people that saw the problem. You know, as it usually is, when you see the problem clearly, the answer is contained within it, not that you necessarily see it. And so all of the non-Buddhist teachers at the time that the Buddha was pursuing his own enlightenment saw as far as we have so far. So definitely that can't be the truth that he's talking about that's so penetrating. But it's a very important one to understand. It is the starting point. It is where things had got to at the time that the Buddha came to his more penetrating truth. That for for us as uh, souls, as Atmans, as separate entities, to exist as an Atman, as a soul, as a separate entity, is to suffer. And you could translate that as life is suffering. In that sense, you could say it's, it's inevitable. There's no way out of this. The only way out of this is the destruction of the Atman, of the separate, the annihilation of the Atman, the annihilation of the separate soul. Okay. So, okay, we'll talk more about that inevitably, but that's what everybody was seeking at the time of the Buddha, is a way to stop being this Atman that was reborn, and if you were reborn, we were bound to experience suffering. And in that sense, it is absolutely true to say life is suffering, or all life is suffering. But that is not the Buddhist truth of suffering. That is the truth of suffering of the Vedic and Upanishadic teachers who were teaching when the Buddha came along. So we're looking to go one step further here. What on earth is it that the Buddha figured out that nobody else had to that time? Well, to understand that, we have to uh, go out of the actual text of this sutra and go to many other sutras where the Buddha talks about dukkha. He talks about fear. Dukkha is uh, 
it, it's what's called vedana or feeling. And it can be said that there's uh, three kinds of feelings. There is dukkha, the feelings that are dissatisfactory in some way. There is sukha, there are the feelings that are satisfactory in some way. And then there are edukha, esukha, neither satisfactory nor dissatisfactory. So if you think about it, everything, every experience you have has to fall into one of these three. It covers the entire range of possibilities. It's either satisfactory, uh, producing some kind of pleasure in some way or another, it's unsatisfactory, uh, dukkha in some way, or it's neutral. Anyway, in these later sutras where he's talking about dukkha, he says there is dukkha of physical origin and there's dukkha of mental origin. The dukkha of physical origin, that, that's pain. That's, you know, a, a mosquito bites you, a rock falls on your toe, uh, you get uh, what, all of the different things you can think of that produce physical pain. That kind of dukkha of physical origin could include a really loud sound, you know, an explosion that really hurts your ears or something. Uh, it could uh, include a, uh, an, an odor that makes you feel nauseous and uh, you're going to throw up or something. Things that are unpleasant, that are of a physical nature, that are the result of the senses. And then the other kind of dukkha is the dukkha that is mental in origin. So let's think about that a little bit. And actually, if you go to the next truth, which helps us to understand this, he said that that uh, the origin of dukkha is craving. Now, craving is a mental thing, right? He didn't say the origin of dukkha is craving and things that hurt your body. He just said the origin of dukkha is craving. And we go on to the next truth. He says the cessation of dukkha is the cessation of craving. He doesn't say cessation of craving and things that hurt your body. So let's go back to dukkha. And let's think of it in terms of, okay, there's dukkha that is physical in origin, and there's dukkha that is mental in origin. Let's look at this again. So I think you know that a Buddha is somebody who has completely overcome craving, total cessation of craving, right? All right. So if a Buddha has experienced a total cessation of craving, there should be a total cessation of dukkha, right? All right. Does that mean that when a person becomes awakened that they no longer experience uh, physical there's no longer anything happens to their body that is a painful nature? No, it doesn't. We know that. How do we know that for sure? Well, we know that from the sutras. A lot of times in the sutras, you know, Buddha would be giving a talk and somebody ask a question and Buddha would say, my back's sore. Uh, sorry, Putra, why don't you answer it? So he had a sore back. And if you look at the sutras, you'll find that. Uh, his cousin was very jealous of him and decided to try to kill him one time, so he threw a rock down 
And the rock didn't hit the Buddha, but hit another rock, and it splintered in a very sharp shard, lacerated the Buddha's foot. And apparently he was not able to walk for several weeks afterwards. So it seems like there was some physical dukkha in that, right? in the Mahaparinibbana Sutra, where it speaks of the, the last days of the Buddha. Uh, before his final illness, he also had a very serious case of dysentery. And of course, you know, dysentery... So to be awakened doesn't mean that somehow you have this golden light body that nothing can ever hurt anymore, or that somehow you have the karma that no mosquito will bite you, no rock will cut you. So. Obviously, this is talking about something different. So, if dukkha, if we look at the mental dukkha, of the mental suffering that we experience, well, some things are obvious. It's purely mental if we lose something that we love. That's a purely mental kind of suffering. And uh, somebody insults us, that's a mental kind of suffering. There's all kinds of, as a matter of fact, just review all of your suffering for a moment, and you'll find a huge amount of your suffering, probably the worst suffering you've experienced in your life, has been mental. Is that not true? Well, let's look at the relationship between physical suffering and mental suffering. Now, here's something that all of you who have done some meditation have a great advantage of, because you've discovered firsthand what I'm about to talk about, which is that um, the suffering that you experience when there's discomfort in the body is dependent upon the mind. And those of you that haven't discovered firsthand what I'm talking about, say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, when something happens, when my leg hurts, my leg hurts. But one of the things that meditation teaches us, your body becomes uncomfortable in meditation. The longer you sit in meditation, the more likely you are to experience pain in your body. Uh, This may seem like uh, an unfortunate thing, and maybe even a discouraging thing. Who'd want to meditate if you sit there and your body hurts? But it's not. It's actually a wonderful thing because it's going to lead you to a level of understanding. Because when you sit in meditation and some part of your body, say your your back or your neck, starts to ache really badly, maybe your knee hurts or something like that, what you have to do is you have to take that as your meditation object and you meditate on the pain. And uh, I won't go into the details of how you do that, but when you meditate on the pain, what you're going to find is your relationship to the pain totally changes. What you will discover is that bodily pain is just a sensation, an unpleasant sensation, but just a sensation. All of the suffering that you experience in response to it is something that happens in your mind that the suffering and the pain are two different things. And if you can let go of the mental suffering, then the pain is no longer a problem. This this is one of the things, it's a very important lesson to learn from meditation. 
If you could meditate with no pain at all, it would be a great disadvantage to you because you won't have this opportunity firsthand so easily to discover the truth of this. But your mind magnifies physical discomfort and makes it unbearable. It resists it. It, it, it resists it. It craves for it not to exist. It craves for it to go away. So what the truth that the Buddha had discovered was this, that the way that I like to put it is that for human beings in this world, what we call pain is inevitable. There is no way to escape that. In these kinds of bodies that we are in, <clears throat> these bodies will experience events that produce pain. But suffering is uh, suffering is optional. This is the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering is all about the mental component of suffering is entirely optional. And so what I could say about the Buddha is when his back ached, his back ached, and he did something to ease it, but he didn't suffer the way that you probably suffer when your back aches. When his foot was cut and infected, there was bodily pain, and he, did, he took measures to take care of his foot and not to walk on it, but he didn't suffer the way we might tend to suffer. And the same thing when he had dysentery towards his old age. So this is what we're talking about here. The suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. The cause of suffering is craving, and craving includes both desire and aversion. So the Buddha invites us to understand the truth of suffering. That suffering is something that is dependent upon the mind. Then he invites, he, then he offers us the truth of the cause of suffering and the origin of suffering. The origin of suffering uh, is, is craving. Now, craving means both desire and aversion. But if you think about all of your mental suffering, it comes from wanting to have something that you don't have or wanting to hold on to something that you do have, or the aversion, wanting to get rid of something that you dislike, or that is uncomfortable or unpleasant in some way. So you can see this truth that suffering is the result of uh, desire and aversion. It's a suffering, uh, suffering is due to craving. Then the next thing he invites, and this is before we get to cessation, the thirst or third truth, he says, as a part of the second truth, that this origination, this origin of dukkha is to be abandoned. So he's, this is where he's inviting you to find this out for yourself. You can do this at any moment. When you experience suffering of any kind, regardless of big red sign, sirens going, everything else, says craving is present. So whenever you experience suffering, Look to see if you can find the craving that lies behind it. Okay? And you can all do this. And you should do this as a part of your practice. Do this all the time. And then try the next thing that, he's, that the doctor says, the divine physician says. 
He says, when you can spot the craving that is the cause of your suffering, abandon it. Now try letting go of it and see what happens. And what you'll find, it might only be gone for a moment, but as soon as you let go of your uh, grasping, of your attachment, of your craving, of your aversion, of your hatred, as soon as you let go of it, as soon as you abandon the origin of suffering, the suffering's gone. It may come back. It will come back as soon as as your craving comes back. But in that moment, it's gone. And this is the invitation to do this, to do this over and over again until you become absolutely convinced, as convinced as you are about everything in the delusion that you live in. When you become as convinced as you are that you can't walk through that wall, that indeed craving every time you experience suffering, it's because there is craving. Then you will have done what the Buddha has invited you to do here. Then you will have comprehended the uh, truth of the origin of suffering and you will have abandoned the origin of suffering as, as your experimental process, as your practice. Now the next thing he says is that the cessation of craving, the permanent cessation of craving leads to the permanent uh, end of suffering. And this is, this is the goal. What does he teach? Suffering and the end of suffering? Well, the cessation of craving is what leads to that. Now here's where it becomes problematic. Fine, we can abandon craving for the moment and experience that, yes, indeed, what he said is true. But how on earth do we eliminate this craving in us? Because if you do the practice that has just been described. Maybe you didn't realize that this Four Noble Truths was a practice. It's a practice. And this is part of practicing the Dharma in your daily life, is to keep doing what we've just gone through. Notice whenever there's suffering, whenever there's dissatisfactoriness. Notice that it's due to craving. Notice that, uh, that if you can abandon it, even for a moment, that the, that the suffering goes away. If you do this practice, then you'll have understood this, then you'll see, see the, the, the truth that if you could get rid of it once and for all, but how do you get rid of it once and for all? Because you've seen it's always there, and even when you abandon it, it comes back, right? Now for those of you that haven't done this practice, what I'm saying now is theoretical. And for those of you, some of you have done this practice and do it all the time. You do this practice all the time, right? And you, back here, you do this practice all the time, right? Have you started doing this practice all the time? Occasionally. Occasionally, okay. And do you do this practice all the time? No, you don't. Okay. But this is the practice. This is the path to awakening in daily life, is doing all of these practices all the time. If you do it all the time, it gets really, really clear and easy to understand. Uh, the veil of delusion will start to, to thin as a result. So what you find is that the craving, you can't, you, you, you can't make it stay away just by letting go of it, just by abandoning it. It's not that simple. Otherwise, everybody's problem would be solved. I could say to you, okay, just abandon craving for good, you know, completely and no more problems. So, 
Now, once again, we have to look beyond what's contained directly in the sutra to understand this, but when we do, we find that the Buddha spoke of the roots uh, of wholesome and unwholesome mental states. The roots, and, and unwholesome mental states are ones that have to do with your own suffering and, afflict, and afflicting others with suffering. And what he says is that there are always two roots. There's craving together with delusion or ignorance. These are always together. Whenever there is delusion, there is craving. And whenever there is craving, there is delusion. Actually, in many of the sutras he speaks not of two roots, but of three roots. Desire, aversion, and delusion. And you have either desire and delusion together, or else you have aversion and delusion together. But now we're getting down to it. The delusion is what keeps the craving going. And until you get rid of the delusion, you can't, you will not achieve the permanent cessation of craving, and you will not achieve the permanent cessation of suffering. So do you see how it works? Okay. So, and this too, this truth is one to be discovered through practice. You discover that, you know, when you keep finding the craving is always there, and you look, if, if you, if you, through your study, you have learned the theory, the theory is that wherever there is craving, there is delusion. So now, you start looking the same way you started out whenever there was dissatisfaction, you look for the craving. Now, whenever you spot the craving, you try to look for the delusion that is the root of it, the delusion that underlies that. So, now we're getting back to, long way around, getting back to Scott's question here. What is this delusion, anyway? Uh, the delusion is that we think that we are a separate self, an entity, an atta, or atman. Atta is a Pali word, atman is the Sanskrit word that refers to the self or the soul. And we think we are this separate, permanent entity, this soul, this being. And that, uh, and, and so that's part of the delusion. A very difficult one to overcome. The other part of the delusion is we feel like we are this separate self living in a world of other separate selves. I'm this separate self and here I am confronting this world of other separate selves and other separate entities, not just other people and other animals and trees, but also rocks and buildings and mountains. Right? Is that not how you see yourself? I am the self in a world of things. That is the delusion. That is the delusion. And it's not simple to see through this delusion, but it is the most important thing to see through this delusion. And the reason is, exactly as Gerald pointed out, as long as you are in this delusion that I am this separate self, living in a world of other things, then 
I'm constantly in a state of struggle. And just to be in that state of struggle is dukkha. But I'm bound to lose the struggle. I mean, if all of you are trying to get what you want, that's going to make it, that's only going to make it harder for me to get what I want, right? And if, in, in a world of things, you know, I, I'm limited in, in what I can do. You know, I, I can't, I can't move a mountain because I'm limited in the impact that I have on things. And so if satisfying myself, if meeting my needs requires a lot of things to happen that I can't make happen, I'm doomed. And this is the delusion. So, now, we're once again at a point where you have a good theory. Great theory. Okay, if I didn't see myself as a separate being in a world of other separate beings, then a lot of my problems would be solved. And once again, this is a theory. But it's a theory that we have to test, and we have to explore, and we have to discover the truth of. Um, the truth is that all the, there are no things. You've heard of emptiness? Emptiness means there are no things. Things do not exist. Doesn't mean that nothing exists. I mean, that would, the conversation would get stupid at that point if somebody said, ah, oh, emptiness means nothing exists. Or somebody, all right, I say, there are no things, that, that uh, things do not exist. I mean, we, we enter into the uh, realm of nonsense if we take things do not exist to mean that nothing exists. Because obviously, something exists. We don't know what it is. <laughs> but uh, the idea is that seeing the world made up of things is something that our mind does. And seeing ourself as one of those things is something that our mind does. It's not the way things really are. And if you practice understanding this, there are different ways that you can approach that. You can look inside to find the self that you really are and see what it is that you find. You can observe your mind and yourself in action and other things in action. And you will come to the conclusion that, well, yes, everything is just a process. Everything is interconnected. There really are not these separate things. That's just an illusion. Everything is this interconnected process. Do you get the feeling of that? Do you get the feeling that we're all interconnected? You know, there is continuity between us. Our mind does a very useful thing that it separates me from you, and that's good. That way I know whose car to drive home now. <laughs> Although there's some other people's car I might like better to drive that. <laughs> but but uh, there are no such things. There, there is only process. And if you look, if you search for the self that you think you are, what you'll find is, is not a process, but many different processes. And not one set of many different processes that is constantly there, you know, but rather processes that come into existence and cease to exist 
constantly changing. So the self that you think you are, when you do the practice and when you look into it, you will discover is a bunch of different processes, and it's not even the same processes from one moment to the next, and they're constantly changing. And every single one of those processes is the result of causes and conditions. And every single one of those processes and the end of one of those processes can be traced to virtually everything else because everything is causally interconnected. So you see that your selfhood from this point of view begins to dissolve like a drop in the middle of the ocean, right? You can see that at the intellectual level. You have to discover that at the intuitive level and then you have to discover that at the level of direct experience. When you've done that, you will be free from suffering. Yeah? What? Is it possible to take a short break? Oh, it's possible to take a short break. Yeah, yeah. it's a good idea. We'll take a break. Okay. Um, so anyway, that, that's the long answer to Scott's question. The, the delusion is that the world is as it appears to us. It is not. It is empty of being the way it appears to us. Our mind creates an impression of the kind of world the way it is. And the other important part of this truth is that the self that we imagine that we are does not exist. It too is empty of being the way it appears to us. That is the delusion. Once that delusion is overcome, then we can uproot the craving. So I'll just take a minute here, we'll take a break, but do you see, I, I just want to know, do you see the connection here? That as long as you feel like you are a separate self in a real world, there is a boundary of conflict, you're going to have to experience craving. Because if I am a separate self, I have needs to be met, so there will be desire. And I have, uh, I have various causes of suffering to avoid, so therefore there will be aversion. So the only way out of the problem of desire, out of the problem of suffering, uh, is, and the only way to get rid of the desire and aversion that creates the suffering, is to dissolve the mental trap of seeing ourselves in separate in the particular way we do.